The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you are in the right place. If you're here where I am on the east coast of the United States, we're just recovering from what was supposed to be a blizzard, turned out just to be a nasty snowstorm. So I hope wherever you are in the world, you are safe and sound and warm and dry and don't venture out if the roads are bad. We're safe inside here on Game Changing Smart Cities of the Future. And let's take a peek and see what the buzz on the street is. Well, the street's snow covered here, but we can still hear the buzz. The buzz is as following. There are many initiatives for smart cities, but we also need smart citizens. That's from Ankit Lai from the Am Admi Party in India, which was the common man's party in India political party. So by 2050, what are we talking about here? More than 70% of the world's population will live in cities. That means challenges. That means opportunities. That's what we talk about here on this series. How will the city leaders be able to meet the demands of such concentrated populations? Well, let's look at who savvy leaders are, what they're doing. They're tapping into something called civic innovation. They are tapping into hackathons. We'll talk about that in detail that demonstrate the art of the possible and who doesn't want that. Put on your thinking cap and your imagination. And they're tapping into startup in residence programs that pair startups, new businesses with government agencies. Civic innovation. Get it? It's so top of mind. Hold your hats on. Hold your seatbelts on. There's even an MBA in civic innovation. That was breaking news for me, and I think it's very exciting. We have a great panel for you today. Let me tell you who they are first, and then we will hear from them. In a moment, I will introduce you with pleasure to Jay Nath, N-A-T-H. He's the mayor's chief innovation officer for the city of San Francisco and also a White House champion of change under recent President Obama. Joining him on the panel will be Marianne Kongovi, K-O-N-G-O-V-I, if you want to look her up. She's the COO Chief Operating Officer for an organization called Code for America, and we'll find out from her a little later what they do. And rounding out the panel, of course, is our series sponsor here, Marilyn Zelkowitz, Global Director of Future Cities and Internet of Things at SAP. So let's circle around the table to Jay Nath. And Jay has selected a quote from Helen Keller. 
Very interesting quote. If you're very, very young and you've never heard of Helen Keller, which is possible, she lived from 1880 to 1968. She was an American author, political activist, and lecturer. But what was most remarkable about Helen Keller was she was the first deaf-blind person to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree. And there's a famous movie called The Miracle Worker. If you haven't seen it, go take a look. It must be downloadable somewhere with her teacher, Anne Sullivan. Patty Duke recently departed played Helen Keller and uh, I can't remember the actress um, uh, we will Marlon will tell me later who the actress was who played Ann Sullivan uh, anyway um, President Jimmy Carter made a federal presidential proclamation in 1980 on June 27th naming it Helen Keller Day in memory of her birth so here's the quote Jay has selected alone we can do so little together we can do so much Jay Nath welcome how are you today I'm good. Good morning, Bonnie. Thank you so much for having me here today. We are delighted. Tell me something. Are you in San Francisco today, Jay? I am, and it's a, it's a beautiful morning here. It's going to reach 70 degrees, so I'm feeling very privileged here. I'm, I'm going to say what a college a roommate, college classmate of mine way back in the day used to say when she heard something that made her grumble, she'd go, rugga, 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 rugga. <laughs> We're about 29 degrees with about a 32-mile-an-hour wind and there's snow everywhere, so I'm a little bit envious. Jay, love the quote from Helen Keller. Tell us how it applies to our topic today, talking about civic innovation and smart cities. Go ahead. Sure. You know, I, I think it's really important when you talk about civic innovation that it's really about a community. And for us in the Mayor's Office of Civic Innovation, our theory of change has really been about making government more accessible, more open, more transparent, more permeable. And we've done that by building bridges with our community and really enrolling them in helping us identify what those challenges are and and actually working with them on creating those solutions, whether it's through hackathons or, or other partnership programs. But, you know, when you think about these really big challenges that are facing society, whether it's homelessness or equity issues, the environment, it's not any one organization or any one sector. We really need the best and brightest across sectors working together hand in hand to really make impact in these areas. Thank you very much, Jay. Do you think Helen Keller would be honored that you're using her quote on an internet-based radio show in the year 2017? <laughs> and remember, what I do you think, think she would say? I think she'd be amazed at the advances that we've made in terms of technology and, uh, and, and the work that we're doing in society. And I think, you know, when you reflected on her background, what struck me is that she was so accomplished with so many of the challenges that she faced in her life. And we're often so, um, we take those things for granted in our own life. But I think that's really an important part of government, that we need to serve everybody, people with disabilities, people who are disenfranchised, people who are disadvantaged, and we're not a company. And so we need to make sure that when we de- design and build services that we, that we serve everybody. Very well put. I think she'd be appreciative not only of this collaborative topic we're doing today, Jay, but she'd be appreciative of all the new technology that would have helped someone like her learn so much faster. And uh, I'm still waiting for my memory. To, Anne Bancroft, I think, played uh, Anne Sullivan. We will. I'll ask Marlon if she remembers who was in that, or I'll look it up. Thank you, Jay. A pleasure to meet you. And now let's turn to our second panelist, Marianne Congovi, COO for Code of America, Code for America. Marianne has selected a quote from Jane Jacobs. Jane Jacobs, 1916 to 2006, was an American-Canadian journalist, 
author and activist best known for her influence on urban studies. Her book that was very influential way back in 1961, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And Jane Jacobs argued that urban renewal did not respect the needs of most city dwellers. She also introduced a sociological concepts such as eyes on the street and social capital, terms which we believe still use today. So let's hear the quote Marianne has selected from Jane Jacobs. Quote, cities have the capability of providing something for everybody only because and only when they are created by everybody. Marianne Congovi, so happy to have you. Welcome to the show. How are you, Marianne? I am great. Thank you, Bonnie, and thank you so much for including me in this very important discussion today. Uh, I'll also mention that I also feel very privileged because I'm here in San Francisco like Jay, enjoying a beautiful morning. (laughs) Oh, just rub it in, the two of you. You're ganging (laughs) up on me, and I, Marlon, maybe in D.C. We're going to find out in a few minutes. So, Marlon, we're going to have to (laughs) not let them gang up on us here. Marianne, I, I love the quote from Jane Jacobs, and I have quoted her myself on several of our radio series about cities. I find her her information Fascinating. Did you know, by the way, that she was instrumental in the cancellation of the Lower Manhattan Expressway, which would have gone right through Soho in Little Italy, and she was arrested for inciting a crowd at a public hearing in New York in 1968? Did you know that? Yes, I used to live in Soho, so that's how I first uh, learned about Jane Jacobs and was very grateful for her efforts decades later. And I think that's ultimately what inspired me to to mention her as, as a quote, because uh, she, while she was definitely an intellectual, a deep thinker and a writer, the thing that um, the lasting impact that I felt, like I said, decades later, was because she was able to identify uh, the needs of her neighborhood and organize through grassroots activism the, the community to ensure that their needs would also be met, and the the residents of those neighborhoods benefit to this day because of that effort. There you go. So talk talk to me specifically about the quote, only because and only when they're created by everybody, for everybody, by everybody. How important is this in our topic about civic innovation today, Marianne? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, it, it's important because what is what is the purpose of civic innovation? I think it's to, to make uh, our cities better for, for our res- the residents and the best way to do that is to be inclusive and to understand their needs. And her quote, again, it's, it's fairly old, but it's still 100% relevant, speaks to the need for understanding citizens, understanding residents, understanding those that are impacted and those that should benefit from, uh, from, from the environment that we live in. And it also definitely resonates with a lot of the work that we do here at Code for America, which is elevating and surfacing and understanding user needs um, as they relate to uh, government services, and then bringing that back and partnering with government to help uh, deliver on those needs through technology, which is uh, which is our um, area of expertise. And Marianne, before I, I bring Marlon in on this, and, and I want to thank her for inviting you and Jay, because she put this show together, and obviously very expertly, as always, she does. Uh, Marianne, how long has Code for America been around? So Code for America is a six-year-old startup in many ways. Uh, and the original inspiration was to bring uh, tech talent to key, prob- key talents in our society, specifically at the city level. And in many ways, we're still on that initial mission of bringing, bringing talent to government. Uh, and the way that we think about it is that we, um, we understand and believe technology can be a force for improving 
people's lives at, at unimaginable scale, uh, but they can only do that uh, by supporting government and making government work better. And we are, we are in the business of bringing those two worlds together. Thank you very much. Pleasure to speak with you, Marianne, and thank you for calling us. And now let's turn to Marlon. I keep referencing you. and we, Marlon, before I read the quote you sent from Buckminster Fuller, Bucky Fuller, where are you today, Marlon? Oh, I'm in Washington, D.C., where we've been hit with the stormy weather. Unfortunately, it was a mix of sleet and snow and freezing rain, so it's just sloppy. It's not very sloppy. nice here. It's cold and, and gray and unpleasant. And you and I are representing the East Coast while Marianne and Jay are laughing at us from California. Do you think that's fair, Marlon? Seriously. Life isn't fair. <laughs> oh, she, she's a politician. Thank you. Marlon Zelko, it's Global Director, Future Cities and Internet of Things at SAP. And as I mentioned, Marlon has selected a quote from R. Buckminster Fuller. 1895 to 1983, American architect, a systems theorist, author, designer, and inventor. He popularized, published more than 30 books. He popularized or coined terms such as spaceship earth. He was known for his, uh, let's see, something to do with carbon molecules known as fullerenes, later named by scientists and compared to geodesic spheres, all above my pay grade. What's interesting to me, Marlon, about Fuller is that he was the second world president of Mensa from 1974 to 1983. And I used to be, I don't know if I am for life, a card-carrying Mensa member. So that, that caught my attention. So here is the quote Marlon has selected from Bucky Fuller. Make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest time possible through spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone. I want to say amen. Marlon, officially welcome to your series. And Marlon, talk to me about this quote, please. Well, I think this quote is, is so beautiful because it, it embodies what we're trying to do with civic innovation, focusing on the cooperation, but also trying to bring out the, the best without harming anybody. Because I, I, as he, if you look a lot at the history of smart city movements and the smartness in government, a lot of that has links back to uh, climate change and links back to concerns about, um, about the impact of carbon and pollution and contaminants on society. So even though... He predates all of those smart city movements and many of those activities, particularly in, that we see in Europe and, and Asia. He had the foresight to know that this is really an important concept. And you see this concept embedded throughout the smart city movements around the world. So that's why I like it. And, and, you know, it reminds me greatly, Marlon, of the quote Marianne has selected from Jane Jacobs. City have the ca- cities have the capability of providing something for everybody only because and only when they're created by everybody. I think there's a great uh, synergy here between the two. And interestingly enough, I'm looking at the dates. No, they lived many, many years apart. Very good first go around here on our opening quotes. Jay Nath, we know where you are. We have a feeling we know what time it is, 12.16 p.m. East Coast time here. We push the clocks forward on Saturday night, and I know you did too. Um, Jay, I know where you are. I know what time it is, 9.16 in the morning. Thank you for getting up early. Jay, what's in your cup today? We like to get a little bit up close and personal with our panelists. So what are you drinking that makes that wonderful smile? I have your picture in front of me, Jay, and that's a fabulous smile. So what makes you happy? You know, I'm a big fan of uh, herbal tea, so this morning I've got uh, something called turmeric tea. Is that what they call golden tea, where you 
you cook up the turmeric with some water, you make a paste, and then you add it to boiling water. Is that the same thing? You know, I wish I had gone through that sort of intensive effort, but uh, I just uh, <laughs> used a tea bag and some hot water, so that, uh, that's my simple trick. But yeah, there's a lot of different ways to produce it, um, but it supposedly has some great health benefits. So that's uh, yes, one of the reasons that uh, I'm a big yep. fan of that type of tea. It's supposed to cure insomnia. It's called golden tea, and it's supposed to cure insomnia if you do it the right way. I've tried it for a friend. didn't work too well, but it makes the house smell very interesting. We'll leave it at that. Marianne Congovi, what are you drinking today that makes you smile, Marianne? So I was raised in England, the land of the tea drinkers, so the day does not begin until I've had a cup of tea. But I will say, as I've moved west in my life, um, I've been more concerned about the health benefits, or maybe like Jay, of my tea. So I've progressed from the English breakfast to uh, my, my current brew uh, of choice, which is Jasmine Blossom Green Tea, um, which uh, apparently is very calming and uh, has plenty of antioxidants and is also good for my brain. But either way, it makes, my, it makes me smile and uh, all those good things as well. I'm very happy that, and by the way, Stash makes that green tea jasmine blossom. Ooh, that sounds delicious, actually. They seem to be the predominant brand. No, we're not selling it. You can also get the organic version by Good Earth. There you go. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so let's move on to Marlon. Marlon, what's keeping you warm and happy in D.C. in the middle of the snow? Well, we have a panel of tea drinkers today. I'm drinking a hot cinnamon spiced tea from Harney & Sons, which is uh, from Upstate New York. It's an American tea purveyor, and it's just so cold. I needed something to keep me toasty and warm. I am glad to hear that. And as Marlon knows, they don't let me anywhere near caffeine on Tuesdays because it's a doubleheader radio day. I had a show an hour ago, so all they let me drink is cool, clear water in a cool, clear mug. And I have a pink straw, Marlon, because I'm hoping the sun will come out not tomorrow, as Annie says, today. We did have a brightening of the sky here about an hour ago in New York, and I almost thought I saw a little bit of sunshine. But I'm hoping amid this winter gloom and what was supposed to be a blizzard, now just a mushy mess, I'm hoping that we We'll get some sunshine. So there. We're talking about a very important topic here, smart cities and civic innovation. We're going to be taking a deep dive into our topic when we come back from the break. We have Jay Nath, the mayor's CIO, chief innovation officer for the city of San Francisco, joined by Marianne Congovi, the COO for Code for America. We now know what that is. And Marlon Zelkowitz, global director, future cities and Internet of Things at SAP. We're going to be doing a deep dive into civic innovation and find out, is there a really an MBA for that? Let's see if our listeners want to get one. That'll be part of our sidebar in our conversation. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We will be right back. Kevin out. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The digital world is moving faster than ever, and the future will be defined by how quickly city and local government leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. The definition of future success is being shaped by many factors, such as increased citizen and business demands for digital services, a growing variety of digital devices and sensors causing a data deluge, and increased volatility in politics and environment, coupled with constrained resources. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how the digital world can lead to a better future for everyone. Game-changing smart cities of the future is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. 
The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You're listening to Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future. Indeed, and we're back with a stellar panel. We have Jay Nass, City of San Francisco, Marianne Congobi at Code for America, and Marlon Zelkowitz at SAP. And I'm still Bonnie D. Graham. Our topic is smart cities and civic innovation. There's an MBA for that. We're going to kick off our roundtable in earnest now with Jay Nath in San Francisco, beautiful, sunny San Francisco. I am jealous. I'll only say it once. And here's some statements Jay sent me in his notes before the show, and we're going to start with this. He says, historically... Technology has been the biggest driver of productivity and innovation gains in many sectors, with government being a notable exception. Jay, please tell us more. We, we all recognize that technology is driving so much change in our society, in our personal lives, and at work. And when you look at government, we're still often using paper, we're still using mainframes, and so there's this huge gap between other sectors and the public sector. And for us, it's really more than just being more efficient. It's really about making government more responsive, making it more equitable, and more accessible. And so we looked at how do we, how do we make government more collaborative? How do we emulate what's happening here in, in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley? And so what we did is we, we worked with startups, and we've introduced startups into government for 16 weeks to solve some of the challenges that we're facing in government. And we've had some tremendous success by pairing governments with uh, startups to build new products and services over those 16 weeks. One of them, which uh, Helen Keller may have benefited from, was <clears throat> created in uh, 2014. Uh, our airport, SFO, was looking to improve the travel experience for blind travelers. And in 16 weeks, a company from Vienna, Austria, partnered with SFO to build a solution that helps blind and visually impaired travelers navigate through the airport. So that was an amazing example of how Working together across sectors with technology companies and government, you can make some really innovative solutions come to life. Very, very interesting. So you're working with startups, which was part of what I covered in my opening. We talked about startups, and we talked about uh, hackathons, and we talked about startup-in-residence. Was that a startup-in-residence program, Jay? That's right. That's a startup-in-residence program, which is now a regional program. We're working with four cities in the Bay Area. And our goal is to, to really grow this to a, a global network. And so we have a partnership with Paris and Amsterdam and Europe. And so we're really um, helping create that network because we know that we can't do this alone. We need to work with other great cities across uh, the world, but not just uh, cities like San Francisco, but small cities as well. So really, we've been intentional about it, being inclusive and working with anybody who's interested in making government better. And tell me, before I move on to Marianne and Marlon, what exactly is a startup-in-residence program? What are the terms? Do they have to have feet on the ground, basically, in your city for a period of time? Do they have to set up an office there? What is the in-residence part, if you don't mind? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a 16-week program, 
and they do have to spend time with those cities. So they, uh, we call it a residence because often those departments will give them some space in their agency so that they can actually work very closely over those 16 weeks. And <clears throat> the other thing is that it has to be pro bono. It's a voluntary mm. program both for government staff to participate as well as the startups. But we hope over those 16 weeks that a great solution is created and that they can create a commercial relationship afterwards. And many of those startups have been able to create products that they are now able to sustain. Wow, very, very interesting. The pro bono part was very important. Obviously, there's a great deal of commitment and energy there and effort. Thank you, Jay. Marianne, love to get your thoughts on what Jay just talked about, please. Uh, I, I am delighted to, to uh, count Code for America among the community of startups that has partnered with Jay. So we have been definitely um, a, a very happy partner of that work, and I think it's, it's essential and uh, couldn't be more supportive of that thinking. Um, we also, just to, just to clarify, we also do work pro bono in the sense that we are a nonprofit. So although we identify as a startup, we, we are uh, firmly in the nonprofit realm. And again, we, we welcome efforts by the city of San Francisco and other local governments to include the best of, of the community on their doorstep, which often includes uh, startups. Very interesting. Marlon, love to get your thoughts on this. Is this something you're a, a big proponent fan of? Do you help organize some of these startup in residence programs, Marlon? Well, we actually support them. So we've sponsored the demo day last year of the startup in residence program through the startup focused program at SAP, which is run by some of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, able to join the demo day in September of 2016 and see a lot of the different startups in action making their pitches and showing the solutions that they had come up with for the specific problems identified. What I really, really like about this is they're addressing problems that don't have solutions today in the marketplace. And certainly, while you know, we're, we have many different technology applications and analytics, we don't meet every single use case and need. And, and there's no way I think any company can do that. And so this is really addressing an important gap in the market using civic innovation to do more for, for more people and for the cities and for the you know, the stakeholders who are all involved. So I, I'm definitely a proponent and, and really love uh, our support of these programs. Very interesting, Marlon. Is this something, uh, by the way, uh, our listeners may or may not know that we're now, I think, in our third or fourth season with our, our series called Startup Focus with Game Changers. And right now, Marlon, I'm working with um, Christina Sosa in the Startup Program and Dave Katona. I don't know if you know Dave. He's a frequent panelist on these shows. They're on every third week on Thursday. When, when are they on? No, they're actually on Tuesday afternoons uh, at in this time slot. Yes, they are. So they alternate in the same time slot with your series. So uh, we're always very happy. I'm going to have to ask Dave Katona about that next time I speak with him. So, Jay, I'm going to circle back around the table to you. Any comments you'd like to add on what Marianne and Marlon added to yours before I move on? No, I think there was a great uh, feedback. Uh, so thank you again, SAP, for all of your support. Oh, wonderful. There's a shout-out to Marlon and SAP. Let's talk about, let's see, um, yeah. Let's talk about something interesting. Marianne, I'm looking at your notes. Of course, everything was interesting, but uh, something is catching my attention here. You say innovation usually comes from within. The frontline people doing the work often know best. Let me read a little bit more. These frontline government leaders and employees 
partner with a network of civic leaders and technologists to make a difference in their communities across the country and around the world. So let's focus on the frontline people. Uh, do you think they always know that their innovation is going to take hold and leave an imprint, leave a footprint, if you will, Marianne? Uh, that's a really good question. I think, um, you know, I, I think probably they're often just focused on the day-to-day realities of the mm-hmm. challenges they have and just want to make it a little bit better. Um, I think innovation can can seem like a, a, a high a pie in the sky concept that that is out of reach for the for the average mortal. But in reality, it's just making things a little bit better. And of course, there will always be the disruptors outside um, and the the innovators uh, in different sectors that are doing radically different things. But what we've noticed in in our work is that actually little little changes from the folks that are living the reality of what isn't working on day-to-day can have dramatic consequences. And that's what uh, we, we celebrate and we seek to um, exploit as a strong word, but uh, seek to, to benefit from through listening to them, through working with them, through ensuring that we can improve outcomes by understanding the shortcomings of what they're currently working with. Interesting. Question for you, Marianne, before I move around the table with this topic. Um, thank you for saying it was a good question. I'm wondering, you say they're doing day-to-day. They're putting one foot in front of the other, basically. Do you think there's an aha moment or your eureka moment where perhaps somebody outside says, look at what you've accomplished. Look at what you've done. You've created this great innovation. We're going to have a parade for you or we're going to put up a flag or we're going to give you some free jasmine blossom tea. Do you think, h- yeah. how do they know? Yeah, talk to yeah. me. Yeah, no, it's it's a good question. It's a good question. I'll I'll, I'll share um, perhaps a slightly bigger example, and it and it comes yeah. back to work um, that was uh, inspired by actually the you know the city and county of San Francisco. So, um, frontline workers, mostly leaders in the health and human services division, noticed that it was hard. Um, they 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 did their utmost to get um, folks who needed food onto food stamps. The program's called SNAP at the federal level. And yet they were dropping off the rolls. They just couldn't keep them on the rolls. And so the city and county of San Francisco invited us in to come and partner with them to figure out what was happening. And so we, um, we interviewed and spent time with folks on the front line and just spent time and looked at the user experience. And ultimately, as a result of all of that work and partnership, we were able to uh, change the front door for how folks replying online. So the, the major blocker was uh, if you had the kind of job where you couldn't spend a day sitting in an office, your only option to get um, to apply for these benefits was to spend almost an hour on a pretty involved website that asked mm-hmm. a lot of very confusing questions that left a lot of people mm-hmm. out. So again, because of the time we spent with frontline employees and understanding, okay, there's 200 questions here. Like, What are the absolute minimum questions we need to get folks in the seat here for the interview to get the to get the food benefit. At the end of this process, um, we now have um, a site that anyone can go to on their phone. You can try it at home today if you or someone you know needs help. Get calfresh.org, and it takes less than eight minutes, um, and it will get you an interview and it will get an application in the hands of a frontline worker in a format that they can understand and they can use. So again, there was there was an identified need at the front line. They helped us understand that need and how to make it easier for users, and now we have better outcomes. We have more people getting food in in San Francisco, and that innovation and that invitation has sparked 
um, work that we are now taking to counties across California. Thank you, Marianne. I'm looking at your notes, and there's a statement in here, a very quotable statement that I believe wraps up exactly what you shared with us. It's privilege your users' needs above all others, a.k.a. focus on the user, all else will follow. That's it, isn't it? That's it. That's it. And the only thing I will add is when we think about users, we think about actually two quite distinct groups but that are indivisible. Um, one are the, the residents, the citizens uh, needing the help or needing to use a given service. Um, in our case, we focus on um, services that uh, people who need help the most use, um, but it can apply to any service. And then the other user group that uh, is indispensable for our work, are the, like we've been talking about, those frontline uh, government workers, the eligibility workers, or the government workers in, in whatever group or division delivering government service. Thank you, Marianne. Very profound. Marlon, love to get your thoughts on this. Focus on the user, all else will follow. What do you think? I think that's absolutely critical, and it's critical not just for civic innovation, but I think for all of technology today. The user experience is is king, and that's why you're seeing so many applications being extended to or primarily designed with the mobile device in hand. And I also think that Marianne's made some really important points there and, and maybe something we should think about. You know, if you're, if you're talking about what the end user needs and you're dividing them into two major groups, the citizens, the residents, the people who need a service, and then the frontline employees who are serving them, they, their needs are different and their ability to support something is different. And historically, um, when you think about how a company would approach it, they think mostly about the frontline worker or they think about the laws and regulations and the things they need to comply with. They're not necessarily thinking of that end user, that citizen. And so I think it's a really, it's really shifted things, kind of turned that paradigm on its head and makes a much, um, much more powerful an effective tool if you make sure that you consider all those stakeholders. You know, and I will say that probably the reason why a lot of um, vendors have focused on the frontline workers because the buyer was necessarily going to be, you know, the entity, and so they were focusing on the people who were doing the buying and not the ones who were the actual end user. So I, I really, you know, applaud all the work that, that Jay through the Startup and Residence Program is doing, and that um, and that Marianne is doing through Code for America. It's it's great work. Thank you, Marlon. I'm so glad you've introduced them both to us. Jay Nass, San Francisco, we're circling around the table to you and love to get your thoughts on this. What do you think? Frontline workers, user experience, where do you sit? Yeah, I would just expand the sort of circle here, frontline workers and the other sort of uh, stakeholders when we think about our constituents being part of that solution, as well as different perspectives and, and lenses that we need to bring into the table. So, as an example, what we've done is we've worked with our city agencies to identify some of the needs that they have, and then we pair them with private sector and social sector talent uh, to work together on some of these uh, challenges and problems. So we'll often bring in our constituents to help really think about those needs as well as those solutions. And I'll share one example with you. We paired uh, our department working on affordable housing with Google Talent. And so Google donated some staff for a period of 16 weeks to work part-time, and they helped understand and do that user research to really deeply understand what are the needs from our social sector, from government staff, from our constituents who are navigating this really Byzantine and undignified process of trying Mm -hmm. to access affordable housing. 
um, and really making that much more accessible and thinking about user experience as, as Mar- Marlon said, as sort of the king here, how do we ensure that that perspective is done? So they did all this tremendous work and we, we, we actually in less than a year have developed, I think, one of the best affordable housing sites in the country. Uh, but it wouldn't have been possible, I think, without that real collaboration, looking at the different sectors coming together. And of course, you know, working closely with the end users, the people who are going to benefit from this to really guide what direction we go into. So I think Frontline's really critical because they understand the needs, they understand the problems. But we need to give them the space and empower them and often bring in other uh, actors to help uh, catalyze some of these really innovative solutions. Thank you. Thank you. You said some very interesting things there. I was trying to capture them on Twitter. Thank you, Jay. Marianne, anything you want to say to wrap up this topic? Because I have a, a very, some very hot things here in Marlon Zelkowitz's list that we absolutely have to talk about that I mentioned in the opening and we haven't touched on them yet. So, Marianne, anything you want to wrap up? I uh, only to violently agree with Jay and well, and Marlon, and thank you both for your, your comments. Uh, collaboration really is the name of the game. We um, The good news is there are many, many organizations and people and stakeholders in this ecosystem who want um, to drive progress and, and drive for better outcomes. And uh, we, uh, we are excited that more and more are getting included and more and more um, actors are, are deploying their talents against uh, some of our, our biggest challenges as a society. Thank you very much. Marlon, you know where I'm going with this. Hackathons, hack, 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 hackathons, perhaps the best-known form of civic innovation. I don't know whether it's a revered term or a feared term, depending on what you know about the possibilities. So, Marlon, I'm just going to lay it out here. Talk to me. Please define hackathons, and then we'll go around the table. Sure. Well, hackathons are, you know, as you pointed out, the earliest form of civic innovation, you know, hackathons are a popular form. Individuals and teams get together to code um, software solutions, applications for a specific period of time and ideally produce some kind of a prototype that they can share at the end of the period. The time period is typically like a one or two days. And you have uh, developers and designers and all sorts of participants often working with um, open data sets or, or data sets that can be shared because we certainly know, especially in government, there's a lot of, there are many data sets in the healthcare areas or in citizen-related areas that you can't share. There are privacy laws and regulations you need to, you know, abide by and, and comply with. So they come up with this uh, solution and then they pitch them at the very end of the session. Uh, what we what you see with a lot of these is it's a chance also for a group of people to learn a new set of tools, to apply their talents in new and creative ways, and and to really um, showcase new technology. So it has a lot of potential benefits for all the participants involved, and it can also help with uh, user adoption of of new kinds of tools and technologies. So that's kind of a starting point. I'd like to hear what Jay and Marianne have to say on the topic because I know that they have more experience than I do in this, and I, you know, we've certainly hosted them in the, in the state of Indiana, in the port of Antwerp, in the Netherlands, and even, I think, in, in the San Francisco Bay Area and Palo Alto itself, but I'd like to hear their perspective on and their experience with hackathons. 
Okay, Marlon, before, before we bring in Jay and Mary, and I just want to make it clear that hack is the word hack, which is a, an endangering or endangered word that we don't want to talk about, is part of the first four letters of the word hackathon, which is controlled, right, right, Marlon? It's controlled. There are the right people at the right table with the right opportunities to deal with all kinds of code, and they brainstorm for a purpose and together, and something comes out of it. Am I right on that? I just want to make I don't sure like everybody. The word control. I really don't like the word control. I like the word managed, or I like the oh, word okay. guided, uh, or you know, it's, it's collaborative and it has a shared common goal. Uh, the word control just makes me uh, makes me think that it, you're not able to. How do you harness creativity if you're trying to do too much controlling? I sit That's corrected. I like that very much. So the idea that there's a purpose, a group comes together for a purpose called a hackathon where the goal is to manage their time and come out with something, perhaps a prototype that can be used for the, for a good of some organization or some, some segment of society. Correct? Is that good? Yeah. And, and traditionally we've, um, we've tended to use these around data sets without a specific, um, aim in, in necessarily predefined. It's like, what can you do around, you know, emergency response or what can you do around um, traffic accidents or what can you, and thinking about trying to reduce them. So the problem set is maybe defined, but not the expected outcome of, you know, what was, what would that solution or how would the data be used? That's up to the people participating in this wonderful uh, short event. Thank you very much. Now let's go around the table. Jay Nath, what was the role of hackathons in your innovation in the city of San Francisco? Well, I can share with you that we've been big proponents uh, when we first created our office and we've held a number of hackathons, but we've really moved away from them for a couple of reasons. One is really about sort of this creating solutions in search of problems. We often saw that these products were being developed, but there weren't really any sort of end users in mind necessarily, and there was no plan about how we could actually use them. So we saw a lot of the value in um, in hackathons about community engagement and really enrolling more people in, into the process, but it hasn't been really effective in creating tangible solutions that we can use, uh, whether it's in government or outside of government. And I know there's, there's some exceptions out there uh, where it's created a lot of value, but for us, we've tried to look at changing that model towards a more structured approach um, so that we can actually create sustainability. And that's why we've brought in startups. They bring that creative perspective, they have the ability, and then they have the ability to sustain those solutions um, in the long term and actually help uh, bring them to other communities, not just in San Francisco and the Bay Area, but across the country and across the world. So we've learned from our experience and we're building on that experience and uh, we still participate in hackathons, but it's not our only tool in the toolkit these days. Very interesting. Truth be told, as they say, fascinating. Let's move to Marianne Congobi at Code for America. Marianne, your thoughts on hackathons and their value. What do you think? Yeah, I tend, I tend to agree with Jay. I think uh, let's not put too much um, pressure on hackathons. That if our expectations are set appropriately, I think they can still be a useful uh, mechanism for growing the funnel of folks who uh, are aware of the te- technical challenges facing um, uh, cities and, and um, organizations and government. Um, and I think uh, on, the, on the flip side, it can also increase awareness of what's possible for, for those partners that are hosting the hackathons or, or seeking solutions or potentially, um, you know, for ones that are more structured that have specific uh, challenges. Um, 
I will I will say I've I've attended hackathons where um, there's you know the proverbial tech employee shows up and thinks that they can um, deploy their skills in a day and, and and build something that will work and they've been humbled <laughs> humbled by the challenges and, and, and from understanding as they sit next to the city worker um, at the scale and complexity of of what the reality is um, so I think from a perspective of culture change from increasing empathy and respect from one sector to another, they're unbelievably powerful. Um, but I, like, like I said, I tend to agree with Jay, they are not um, the end, they're not the solution to uh, solving some of our deeper, larger challenges, but they, ha- they do have a role to play. Thank you, Marlon. This was yeah. yeah I want to add. I agree with with Jay and with Marianne exactly. I think that hackathons can be a great starting point to show the art of the possible, but need to go further. They really do to create something sustainable, and they they really help become a catalyst for change and can help unleash some of the creativity. And I, I love what what both Jay and Marianne's programs are doing in trying to make this all much more sustainable for civic innovation. Thank you very much around the table. Marlon, we've got about six minutes till we get to our predictions uh, lightning round, if you will. And I'm looking at your notes here, and here's a topic I would like to cover. You say many cities have their own civic innovation ecosystem because each city has its own problems to solve. In the end, all politics are local. Marlon, why don't you talk to us about this concept of a civic innovation ecosystem and and perhaps how would somebody listening anywhere around the world, because you know, Marlon, we have a global audience here on the Business Channel on World Talk Radio. How would they go about approaching the development or the expansion of what would qualify as a civic innovation ecosystem? Marlon? Um, well, that I think that these things are best developed organically. But that said, what you often find is um, cities which are often struggling with budget priorities to make really difficult trade-offs in, in to achieve the goals that the mayor set forth for the city and yet also provide for the citizens as they, as they should and, and solve the kinds of big problems, whether they're traffic or um, storm, um, you know, changing ecological systems, storm cleanup from snowstorms, whatever that may be. So they need to figure out new ways of tapping into um, and unleashing creativity or harnessing innovation to solve their biggest problems, especially if a solution isn't out there on the shelf today for them to buy. They often will tap into um, local area nonprofits that are already serving the community to work with them, as well as the universities and maybe local businesses. And that's what that's kind of what you see. And some cities have formed and, and started up their own like public-private partnerships in part because um, one of the big um, challenges for cities that are trying to become smarter have been the traditional procurement laws and regulations, which are, can be quite onerous. And there's a reason for that. I mean, there's a reason because we don't want to have um, people going out and just willy-nilly procuring and giving contracts to their best friend that may or may not be appropriate. So there's a lot of laws and regulations mm-hmm. that were developed to address past abuses. However, that they also slow down the process of procurement, make innovation harder to, you know, to bring forward and bring into the government. So a lot of what we see is use of programs like startup and residence, the formation of groups like um, of public-private partnerships around the city with businesses, with universities, with nonprofits that all aim towards a common goal, and they're aiming to accelerate that. I, I think they all go hand in hand, and I, I think each city 
will know their own landscape best and who the leaders are and who might be interested and, and be able to address that. I think we heard Jay Nass already mentioned that the Startup and Residence Program is global and Amsterdam is a program and San Francisco has a program and they're looking at scaling that beyond. So I think that's, I think that's kind of what you see happening in the world today. You also sometimes see um, involvement at the national level and support for these kinds of programs at the national level. I'll pause there and see if anybody else wants to comment yeah. or if you have any further questions. Yeah, I loved your comment that it grows organically. I'm tweeting that. Jay Nath at San Francisco, your thoughts about the ecosystem being organic or not? What do you see? Well, I think there's a, a big role for government to be more intentional in the growth of that ecosystem, and um, we're seeing it around uh, cities around the globe. They're trying to introduce entrepreneurship. They're trying to be more collaborative. Um, for me, though, it's really about a mindset. It's about a value system that really promotes collaboration, that sees that government or any one industry is not the actual solution that we need to work together. And if you think about that, it's government working with many of the actors that Marlon spoke about, working with academia very closely, working with the private sector, with social sector on some of these challenges. And if we have that as our default um, sort of perspective that we need to work together, I think we'll start seeing many of these silos and walls being broken down and a lot more uh, common interest and shared values, as well as being able to see some shared outcomes that we want to see in our society. So when you think about for example, here in San Francisco around homelessness, uh, obviously a very important issue in cities across the world, but that's not just a, something that government needs to, to manage. This is something that we all have a role to play in personally, individually, but also collectively. Companies, I think, have a, a role to play in that as well. They often um, are easy to point out these issues, but how can they use the talent that they have? How can they use their technologies or their different tools and methodologies to help solve these problems. So I'm a big believer in collaboration, uh, as my quote sort of suggested, and that uh, it's a really powerful force for, for bringing about change in society. Thank you. And Marianne, I'll let you have the last word on this, just 60 seconds, because we are technically in our crystal ball predictions round. But Marianne Congovi, talk to us. Any thoughts about the civic innovation ecosystem concept? Yeah, no, just to say this, uh, both Marlon and Jay's comments definitely resonated with me, uh, and I'll just sort of reiterate uh, similar thoughts, which is um, homelessness, for instance, as Jay mentioned. It's really not government's problem. It's our problem, right? Government represents us and is doing its best to solve that problem, but let's leverage all the talent and creativity that exists, continue to do that through all the programs and and things that, that we can do through the collaboration that Jay has highlighted, and I'm excited to see more of that thinking in, across the country. Thank you. And, and Marlon, I'm just going to wrap this up before we go back to Jay for predictions with my opening quote from Ankit Lay at the Am Admi Party in India. I believe it's a she. I'm going to go on record for that. There are many initiatives for smart cities, but we also need smart citizens. I think that's a, a part of the bedrock of all of this. So, Jay Nath, San Francisco, great conversation with you. Let's wrap it up with a 60-second prediction. Jay, let's look forward to about the year 2020 or anything in that vicinity. You can look into the crystal ball. It's the city of San Francisco and say, ah, I can see clearly now. What do you predict will be different if we met again at that point in time and had a similar conversation? Jay Nath, 60 seconds, go. Well, I'd like to have an optimistic perspective. I know that there's a lot of fear and anxiety about 
the societal changes that are happening because of all the technology, whether it's uh, artificial intelligence, big data. There's so many fears and concerns. But I think if we're engaged as a community, if we're engaged um, as government, working with the private sector, the people who are creating these technologies, and we put forward our values, our values around equity, around making sure that there's safety, making sure that we're uh, protecting our environment, those principles are really important because when it comes down to creating those new products, it's happening in the private sector. But if we don't engage with them, um, I think you'll see some of the challenges that we've seen in the sharing economy and, and some of the other advances that have been made. So really, again, let's work together on trying to craft what that future might look like in 2020 so that it serves everybody and not just the elite. Thank you very much. Going back to the Jane Jacobs quote, and I think that was also part of who else did we have the quote, the uh, Helen Keller quote, and all three quotes work together so beautifully. R. Buckminster Fuller, Marianne Congovi, I've got time for you for your predictions. Why don't you take a full 60, even 90 seconds, Marianne. What do you see in the future? Go. So I also uh, tend to be very optimistic, and I, I expect that by 2020 we'll be talking less about technology as a as a as a separate idea, and just accept that it's it's uh, it's a utility like electricity. It's just something that makes the world go. Just as you need electricity for building, you need technology to run anything that you do. And we'll be moving, and we'll be talking more about how we can be inclusive in solving our problems. And I think this goes back to what Jay said earlier in the call around collaboration. And it's the recognition that again, the challenges facing us in cities is not the mayor's problem or the you know, city workers' problem. It's our collective problem and really we, we own the solution and the solution is something that we will develop together. And that brings me back to Jane Jacobs, which is, uh, as, as we started to talk about at the beginning, which is it's really about um, creating something that works for everybody. Thank you very much. Marlon, I saved, my goodness, they were so efficient I'm looking out to see if it's still snowing here, Marlon. It looks like it is. They were so efficient, I can give you, my goodness, uh, yeah, about 90 seconds, almost two minutes for your prediction. Marlon, go. Well, I think that the more things change, the more they stay the same. So the, the what, the timeless mission of government, protecting, providing, and prospering, or helping citizens and, and all everybody, all the stakeholders in the city, and in the local government area to protect, provide, and prosper, that will not change. But how that, ha- how that is brought about will continue to change, and it's hard for us to know or imagine what kinds of, um, what kinds of utilities we'll be using uh, or what we will take for granted. You know, we now consider the Internet almost like a utility. What will that next thing be tomorrow? Could it be uh, digital identity through the blockchain, for example? I don't know. But I, I, I think the, the what doesn't change and the how does, and we will get there through collaboration of many different stakeholders, academics, uh, nonprofits, uh, city government, citizens, and people. Thank you. The what won't change, but the how will. I think that's very profound and very prophetic. Thank you, Marlon. Marlon Zelkowitz, I want to thank you for putting together a stellar panel. It's been a real pleasure speaking with Jay Nath, City of San Francisco, CIO Chief Innovation Officer, and Marianne Congobi, Chief Operating Officer for Code for America. Marlon, I'm going to ask you quickly. I can just give you about 30 seconds here. What's next on your next episode in a couple of weeks? 
Anything uh, planned We're planning yet? a session on smart lighting, and we are going to have some guests from the lighting who are going to talk about the importance of smart lighting in cities and ties to sustainability, ties to public safety, and other kinds of elements, and maybe a bit about how smart lighting can be a source of multiple sensors where you can um, help use that to smartify the city. So that's the Very topic. interesting. I, I love it. And I want to tell you that I did some research on the history of lamp lighters for a recent show we did, Marlon, on our series Game Changing Utilities of the Future. And it's very interesting about the change in how lighting was done and that part of the workforce was pretty much made obsolete uh, because professional lamp lighters weren't needed to light the street lamps. But, you know, there are still a couple of cities that have vintage gaslight street lights just because it actually Baltimore, the first U.S. city to install street gaslight streets, remove them, but they have one at Holiday Street and East Baltimore as a monument to early America. So they're looking forward to that conversation. Thank you and shout out to Kevin, our engineer extraordinaire at the Business Channel team, World Talk Radio. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. It's been a great time talking with our stellar panel. So here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Well, wait for the snowstorm to be over if you're here. Don't venture out. It's going to be icy on the roads tonight. Be safe. But whatever you're going to do, go out and be a game changer today, even if you're sitting in your office. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Game Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.